Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm your host. I'm in Los Angeles. It is nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. I hope you're doing okay. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Eliza Clark, author of a new novel called Penance. Teenagers can kind of realistically do anything. It, it just seems like your your brain and your personality are so flexible and movable. And even though you might have some basic personality traits, it just feels like you can, particularly when you're in a group, you can very easily get skewed or pulled in, uh, into a lot of different directions. I mean, there are a lot of, I think a lot of the most kind of biggest and famous cases of mass hysteria are often taking place in, in girls' schools. And I think that's something really, really interesting about that. Okay, everybody, that was Eliza Clark. Her new novel is called Penance, available now in the United States from Harper Books. It is the official October pick of the Other People Book Club. Penance is a chilling and very contemporary story of murder among a group of teenage girls. It is an absorbing and unsettling novel about truth, and fiction, darkness, and light. It is a book that investigates, among other things, our cultural obsession with true crime and the ways in which class and power 
can affect perception and outcomes in instances where terrible crimes have been committed. My conversation with Eliza Clark is coming up momentarily. Don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter. Did you know that I have an email newsletter? I do. You can sign up. You can subscribe over at Substack. It's once a week. I will let you know about the latest episodes of the show. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if that sounds good, go subscribe to my newsletter over at Substack. Likewise, if you love this show, if you listen regularly and you would like to help see this show continue into the future, you can join the Other People Patreon community, get merchandise, get a book club subscription over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Today's episode is brought to you by Relegation Books, publisher of Roundabout, the debut novel by Will Mountain Cox. In Roundabout, a group of friends and lovers in Paris weather the polycrisis of contemporary life, exploring cycles of connecting, belonging, departing, and inevitable change. That's Roundabout, the debut novel by Will Mountain Cox, available now from Relegation Books. Okay, so my guest once again is Eliza Clark. Her new novel is called Penance, available from Harper Books. Eliza Clark is a native of Newcastle over in England, where she previously attended Chelsea College of Art. Her debut novel, entitled Boy Parts, was a bit of a sensation. It was initially published by a small indie press, and it took off on TikTok and ended up selling more than 60,000 copies and counting. I had a great time meeting Eliza Clark and talking with her about her life, her work, and in particular, this latest novel, which I am pleased to be spotlighting this month in the Other People Book Club. So let's get to it. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Eliza Clark, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Penance. Yes, so it was it was the murder of Shonda Shara, and to to a, I would say kind of a similar, but I guess maybe a lesser extent, the the murder of Suzanne Kappa, which took place in the UK in 1994. The Shonda Shara murder was a, a case where a young woman was murdered by four girls that she went to school with and I think it was just that that sort of very simple plot line for me there was just something quite interesting in that there and something that I felt like I could work with and I after a certain point I actually kind of stopped reading about the the Shonda Shara murder because I was concerned about them being too similar and I I reached a point where I definitely didn't want to do a direct fictionalization of that story I just wanted to do something original and then the the Suzanne Kappa murder, I, I was sort of most interested in that in terms of it was not really reported on very much in the UK because it clashed with the trial of another major crime in the United Kingdom, which was the, the murder of James Bulger, which was a, a very, 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 very culturally significant case, which happened sort of around the same time in the same area of the country. And I think I was interested in the idea of one case completely eclipsing another, even though they were both very 
extreme and very very major crimes I suppose but one of them ended up having this like huge cultural significance that kind of blotted out anything that you would have heard of the the Kappa murder and I think in in both cases I was interested in the in I guess in young people sort of behaving in a very kind of extreme and very adult way and I was interested in at least definitely in the case of the Shara murder, maybe a, a lack of a sense of understanding the, the permanence or the consequences of what was happening and what could potentially come from it. And yeah, but it, like I said, I kind of after a certain point stopped reading about particularly the Shanda Shara murder because I didn't want to draw too much from it. And obviously you kind of need to recontextualize it because that case happened so long ago and so far away from where penance is set that, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so just to give listeners who haven't had a chance to read yet an idea of the setup for your novel, this is, like the Sharer murder, a story of teenage girls, a group of teenage girls who murder one of their peers. Her name is Joni Wilson. And... You, I think, have characterized your novel as a satire of mm. nonfiction crime writing. Mm. There is a whiff of satire to this. Like that, I, I think when I first started reading, I was reading it as kind of a straight drama, but there is an element of like mockery. Is that accurate? <laughs> like not mockery of the crime, but like mockery of the genre. Yes, I think in terms of crime writing, or true crime writing I read a lot of really really good crime writing um so I suppose it's almost a bit of a a mix of someone with a with a true crime podcast personality trying to write a worthy true crime book so someone who and my my narrator is sort of a washed up tabloid journalist and I think it's sort of very important to I guess have the the context that the the UK press is sort of notoriously kind of evil <laughs> um, among sort of the the nastiest most unscrupulous group of people in in a lot of ways I mean there are some there are some perfect there are some very fine journalists out there but our, our press as, a, as an entity particularly our tabloid press is no notably vicious and notably nasty and unpleasant and I think I, I was sort of interested in in that the idea of that kind of person attempting to do something sort of worthy and revitalize their career in a, in a very worthy way. There was, I listened to a podcast a few years ago now, which was about a, a tabloid. It was, it was, it was a tabloid journalist who had reported on the Fred and Rose West case, which was another major crime that happened in the 1990s in the United Kingdom. And he had been a tabloid journalist at the time. And this case was kind of notorious for having repeated interference from tabloid journalists during the trial in terms of things like they were like paying witnesses to do sort of exclusive almost kiss and tell style stories about their relationship with the Wests and it, and it had this this huge huge knock-on effect and could have completely compromised the entire trial and the guy who was hosting this podcast who had been like a Daily Mirror journalist at the time was like and there were the, there were these other journalists that were doing all of this um, stuff and I was kind of fascinated by that sort of trying to get into this world of true crime which has become so lucrative when you are coming from this very this this very kind of dodgy place I suppose which be, being the UK tabloid press um 
yeah and I think I it's I, I mean in some ways I suppose it's also a, a political satire and a satire of sort of Britain as it as it is now I think that's maybe more where some of the satirical element is coming from but definitely I think in terms of the the sort of true crime industrial complex that we're currently living in okay so as you say true crime has become this huge business it's very lucrative Mm -hmm. very popular Mm -hmm. why do you think that is do you have theories yes I I think um I think it's just it, it really appeals to just a very base interest that people have people are interested in death and people are interested in dying and people are interested in in dying and death in sort of outlandish ways i think particularly the way that a lot of true crime media this is particularly in in the sort of netflix and podcast region of it where you've either got a you know you've got this tv series that you need to get six episodes out of and you know that you've got a kind of you've got you're appealing to like a very broad audience or you've got a podcast where you need to get one episode out every single week and you need to cover a different case and it needs to be a new case and an exciting case and a case that people are going to click on I think it just ends up being that it's boiled down to these very simple and very appealing narratives and often the the very simple and appealing narrative we can come up with is you know there's a very scary man who was born evil and um some good people need to come and catch him to make him stop hurting usually thin young attractive white women and um, because that those tend to be the cases that have the most sort of traction and i think that's just a very simple and appealing narrative for people the idea of a sort of a detective or a crime fighter in some way coming in and saving a whole city from the scourge of this almost Batman villainesque figure that that the media has created and yeah I, I just think it's 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 very appealing to people on just a very simple base level I mean there are also I've heard maybe some slightly misguided feminist arguments for true crime in terms of like it's specifically women like to listen to it because women are more in danger and more likely to be victims of crime which it might be true kind of depending on the crime that you're talking about depending on the kind of woman that you are and depending on where you live that that might be the case and yeah I think I think it just sort of I think people would would quite like for that to be a, a simple sort of morally like a good moral argument for like oh I'm, I need to listen to true crime or I need to watch it or I need to consume a lot of it because it keeps me safe or it makes me feel like I'm better informed about about things that could potentially happen to me when I, I really think ultimately it's almost just a bit of a kind of lizard brain thing about needing to hear or, or wanting to hear about ways that you might die just because it's almost like going past a car crash in that you know you kind of feel the need to to look at it sometimes or a lot of people feel the need to look at it and I think yeah, I think simple appealing narratives and kind of a bit of a morbid and innate fascination with death that a lot of people have. Not me. I can't listen to that stuff. I'm yeah. like, I know people are awful. I know bad things happen. <laughs> I, I don't need to like relive it step by step. <laughs> but there is, I understand the appeal. And I think there also is an element of participation. It's participatory, particularly when mm. the crime in question is a cold case or is unsolved. Yes. 
yeah, I think there's a huge element of that to it now. I think we had a we had a case very recently in the United Kingdom where a woman um, named Nicola Bully went missing. She was an average, I think she was a mother, just kind of a very normal woman who disappeared suddenly while she was out walking her dog. And a lot of people felt the need to kind of take it upon themselves to become citizen investigators, which led to her family being harassed and it being this just this this kind of dreadful tasteless thing that was very unpleasant to witness and I think a lot of that was a product of I guess as I called it before the the true crime industrial complex and people feeling like they have that there is this participate the participatory element to it rather than just I don't know maybe we should just leave this this poor woman's family alone (laughs) maybe you don't need to solve that case maybe you're not going to be able to I think people have almost been taught by I think true crime podcasts I guess things like Serial where it was dealing with like a cold case or a case that wasn't certain that they can contribute to this or that they should contribute to this crime when they probably shouldn't. Well one of the things about your book that I noticed was the fact that the true crime podcasters as you depict them on the page do not acquit themselves all that well like (laughs) that's like really that's where maybe the satirical element of your book is most uh, overt and I again I don't listen to a lot of true crime podcasts but it seems like you probably have at least Mm. in researching for this book is it most often the case that there is this kind of irreverence and even maybe disrespectful tone that podcasters are using when they are talking about horrific crimes yeah, I've, I find that often there is. I mean, I used to I used to be a sort of casual listener to true crime podcasts. I don't listen to them anymore. I, I really went off them in the process of researching and writing penance. I think for, for probably quite obvious reasons, but I I would occasionally and a lot some of the ones that I listened to did bother me. I kind of felt like I was listening to sort of tasteful stuff in the end, and then I kind of realised that I feel like there's a there isn't really that that I feel like there aren't really any tasteful true crime podcasts at least specifically in this format of like we're going to just basically read a wikipedia page for an hour and that's going to be light entertainment and we've got a mattress advert to break up the thing I think it's it's stuff like that that sort of started to really really kind of like I don't know I, I didn't listen to them at all for quite a long time and then tried to go back to them I think it was while I was trying to do some research for penance I was trying to um I listened to one where I was trying to top up sort of my knowledge about the the Shonda Shera case I think actually and about halfway through the episode I remember the host just went on this this tangent where they talked about how one of the one of the girls involved there was there was a young woman who I believe not entirely dissimilar to penance basically sat in the car all night while this went on and they went on this like tangent about how she's like a coward and she should kill herself and like I don't know how you could live like that and I kind of you know it's that that kind of thing where you just think like it I just it it just seems so tasteless to like have an opinion and to to sort of weigh in like that and and it, it just felt very like unempathetic and very kind of like I don't know there's like a real profound naivety to me to to hear about one of these cases and sit and and record yourself talking about how you would have done all of this stuff right and how you would have done this and you would have done that. And and yeah, if they're not kind of taking this sort of almost judge, jury and executioner tone, they're taking this, like you said, this very irreverent tone, which it's interesting who the irreverence often applies to and who it doesn't. I mean, 
I was never particularly fond of it, but I would occasionally listen to Last Podcast on the left because it was something that was repeatedly recommended to me. And I would find that it was it was very odd when you would listen to episodes that were like British cases, even ones that had happened in the last kind of 30 or 40 years where you would think a little bit more respect would be due because of the amount of living victims. And they would just be like doing accents and running sex toy adverts. And you kind of think, <laughs> yeah, there, there was just something a little bit jaw dropping about it. Um, once you kind of sit and think about it for five minutes. I mean, I'm not, I, I think I sometimes sound a lot more, a lot less ambivalent about that kind of content than I actually am. I think there's more so in true crime writing. I do think there is a lot of value to kind of writing and presenting the broader socio-political context for a case, which I think is often important for highlighting to people how in these major crime cases, you know, the justice system has failed or the social care system has failed or the health service has failed. But with with these podcasts where it's like I said, it, it feels like they're just sitting down and reading a Wikipedia page and making jokes for 60 minutes so they can run their mattress adverts. It, it, it does feel very, I, I don't know, it feels bleak. It feels like a bit of a, a, a sad indictment of the times that we live in, in some ways. I should add that uh, in the middle of your novel, there is a giant Squarespace ad, which mm. I found interesting. There is, yeah. It was. <laughs> <laughs> I had to really fight to get that in. <laughs> I was going to say, it's a beautiful ad. I, uh, it convinced me to take the uh, discount. But I... I want to get into the function of literature when it comes to true crime mm. versus perhaps like true crime podcasts, because I think one of the reasons, one of the compelling reasons to write a book like this is to get to explore a crime of this nature in depth and to get into, as you say, the sociopolitical uh, underpinnings and to really try to explore why something like this happens. And all too often in our society, I feel like, especially when something really horrific happens, the, the human response is, to me anyway, underwhelming. Mm. It's a lot of fear, it's a lot of anger, and I feel like fear and anger cloud perception and mm. often lead to irrational responses. And this book, you know, in addition to being a page turner and something that, you know, like I think a casual reader uh, pick, you know, picks up and finds really compelling and interesting in the ways of, I don't know, like most true crime narratives. It is also, I think there's a review in The Guardian that um, points out that it's also a sociopolitical excavation of a small town. Mm. And it really unpacks the history of this town, a fictional town called Crow-on-Sea, mm. which I will cop to Googling to see if it was real, and it's not. I don't think I'm the only one who did that, but yeah. uh, this book does a really wonderful job of layering in the real with the fictional, mm. and the effect is that it feels, all of it kind of feels real and lived in. I mean, you've uh, Crow-on-Sea is, in my, you know, it will live at least in my imagination as a totally real place. <laughs> and I appreciate that. I think that's, that's what literature should do. And 
I, I will also say that while reading your novel, I was thinking back to a conversation I had earlier this year with Rebecca McKay. Mm. I don't know if you've had a chance to read her novel, but I feel like her novel, which I believe is called I Have Some Questions for You, right, yes, I believe your books are in conversation with one another. Mm. They're both addressing true crime in a literary way mm. and unpacking these things and trying to get to a deeper level of understanding. Yeah, I do think there's, like I said, I think there's a lot of space for really good true crime writing. I think this was so heavily inspired by a lot of great, very empathetic and very thoughtful writing. Particularly, I always mention The People Who Eat Darkness by Richard Lloyd Parry. There's a book called, which which will be a, a case that will be very obscure outside of the United Kingdom, and I wonder if even a bit obscure outside the north of England, which is a book called You Could Do Something Amazing With Your Life, You Are Raoul Moat by a writer called um, Andrew Hankison. And uh, I, I really enjoyed the work of Brian Masters as well uh, while I was researching this and, and prior to researching this. And I think there are these books that sort of they really really make an effort to, to 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 explain how something like this could happen because when when something terrible happens i think the the first question a lot of us sort of ask is why and, and how could this happen and i think the way that really good true crime writing does is it is it takes you back and kind of explains every sort of element of that that sort of went into creating this situation so to use the people who eat darkness by Richard Lloyd Parry as an example, he he's telling the the story of a a British woman called Lucy Blackman who went missing and was murdered in Japan while she was working as a hostess, um, in the Roppongi district of Tokyo. So through this, you get you get a history of Lucy's life and a history of her parents' relationship and her, a history of her parents' lives. But you also get the history of nightlife in Tokyo. You get the history of the Roppongi district specifically. You get the history of the hostessing and the 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 water trade in, in Japan, which is sort of their word for kind of nightlife as it intersects with sex work, but isn't quite sex work, which is really interesting as well. And then when we find out that her killer is an ethnic Korean man who has lived in Japan his entire life, you get a history of him and his family and Koreans in Japan. And then as we go through the trial, we learn about the Japanese justice system and about how aggressively it's weighted in favor of the prosecutors. And it, it was just, it just does this fantastic job of, of you really, really understand thoroughly how all of these kind of pieces have come into place, this, this butterfly effect to, to create this, this sort of storm in a teacup for how this could have possibly happened. And and it and it's fascinating, and I think that's where true crime writing is really important for me. I also think it can be a really important debunking tool to make us think more carefully about things like this when they happen, when there are very pervasive narratives in the media and kind of simple hour-long documentaries about things. I mean, the a, re- a good recent example of this is the there was a serial killer who may or may not exist called Bible John who was operating in um, Scotland in the 1960s and a journalist from from here called Francisco Garcia has recently written a book um, called We All Go Into the Dark which is about almost about him kind of debunking the existence of Bible John and how this was 
you know, it's 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 much more upsetting to think that three women who happen to be coming home from the same nightclub were all murdered in a really close spate of time than it is to think there was a serial killer specifically like targeting and operating out of this area. But it, it kind of seems more likely that the serial killer was a sort of construction by the media and that actually Glasgow at this time was just an extremely unsafe place to be walking around as a woman on your own. And yeah, I think I think it can be really, really valuable for, for this kind of work. And yeah, I just I just think it's a it's a shame that a lot of what we, we sort of think of as true crime now is the the Netflix documentary which is packed out with whatever it's packed out with to make its kind of six episode hour long limits and podcasts that are very lazy and not very well researched and yeah, um, I'm rambling. I could go on about this for a really long time, sorry. And we will be right back. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. And now... Back to the program. Yeah, no, I have like I, I have issues with the Netflix, the constant Netflix documentaries about. Again, it's just about something horrible, mm. and it makes you feel sick. And it's like, mm. what's the point of watching this? Unless maybe there's a way to help solve it or something. But otherwise, it's like, what's the word for it? It's uh, prurient. Pr- Prurient, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's the word I was looking for. I'm just like, I don't think this is uh, healthy human behavior, but mm. I get the idea of really trying to unpack it and understand why these things happen. That is valuable mm. if you're taking a deliberate approach, which you do in this book. And there's a framing device, you know, you kind of touched upon it earlier, but I think we should talk about it a bit more, mm. which has to do with the choice of narrator for this book and the way that it opens with a like fictional uh what is it a dis- uh, introduction by a this journalist <laughs> yeah alec his name is alec z corelli mm. uh and you know this is a guy who was implicated in the murdoch news international phone hacking scandal his career he admits this in the page the you know the narrator kind of admits this on the page his career has what it's gone on to the it's, it's hit the skids and he's trying to kind of redeem himself by telling this story of the murder of Joni Wilson by her high school classmates. And there is also in the disclaimer a recognition that the narrator is unreliable and that mm. there have been there have been objections to his telling of the story by people involved who claim that he fictionalized Mm-hmm. So going into the novel, 
the reader is aware that what he or she is reading may or may not be accurate. So yes. can you talk about that choice of yes. having this having this novel narrated by an unreliable narrator, unreliable journalist, tabloid journalist? Yes. So this was this was maybe a slightly later addition to the to the book than people might necessarily expect it to be. And that I I kind of I was speaking before about very good true crime writing that I find to be very important and interesting. And originally Penance was a much more just sort of straight retelling of a crime in the style of a true crime book so a fiction book written as a non-fiction book and that was sort of the only layer there i wasn't quite sure who the narrator was i just knew that they were sincere and they were important and they were sort of trying to do something important and and the more i kind of wrote into that the more it just didn't work the more it kind of like it felt really pompous and really worthy in like a very self-conscious way and I, every time I kind of wrote something and then read it back, I just sort of felt like, God, this just sound like a dickhead. And then it was kind of, I, I read In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. And I was, I was so blown away by that. And I thought it was such a fantastic book. And I was, I was, I was particularly blown away by the line level writing. And I just thought it was, it, it was incredible. It was one of the best books that I'd ever read. And I was, it, it, a particularly frustrating book to read when you're in the middle of, having a slightly fraught time writing your second novel, I would say. And then I started, I, I was reading about Capote, who I, did, I didn't know a great deal about apart from outside of the, there was a biopic film that came out with Philip Seymour Hoffman about 10, 15 years ago. I didn't know much about him outside of that film. And then it was kind of reading about him and the fact that a lot of In Cold Blood was fabricated and a lot of that he was playing heavily, taking heavy liberties with interviews he'd done and with the facts and that he had this very fraught relationship with the truth. I, w I was so, so interested in that and that how the extent to which that like his own status as unreliable narrator had created this potentially sort of fantastic book and would it have been as good if he had been sticking to the truth all the way through and does that matter and to what extent is that important and it just it threw up all of these really really interesting questions for me and I'm also my first novel Boy Parts has an unreliable narrator and I've been I, I sort of struggled to go through a, an interview without at least mentioning once that Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita is probably one of my most formative pieces of work in terms of for, for my writing anyway and that I've I've always always just been fascinated with unreliable narrators it's something that I almost uh, struggle to to get away from a little bit when I'm when I'm working and when I'm writing because I just find them so interesting and compelling yeah I, I really really enjoy liars and I enjoy people's sort of delusions and people's the the narratives that people create about themselves and try to present to other people I just I think that some of the most telling stuff is it's not so much what people tell the truth about it's what they choose to lie about I think that's so so interesting and yeah it just kind of the the novel really really slotted together when I made that decision when I kind of decided that what if he's lying it was also just from a logistical perspective as well because I had these sort of I had these bits that were coming directly from the perpetrators and they were causing me a bit of a logistical headache because I couldn't get rid of them because they were too important but the more I thought about it the more I just thought it's just so unrealistic that he would have these that he would have access to any of this stuff 
and then yes once I decided that he was dodgy and that he was lying it was uh, much easier <laughs> real real weight off, um, <laughs> off Pro- problem problem solved problem, problem solved. solved right <laughs> yeah well one of the things that this novel does really well and this was like slightly unnerving for me as the parent of a 13 year old girl is it really draws like female adolescence and female friendship at that particular time in life Mm. with kind of haunting accuracy. And I think in addition, you are very, I mean, you're a, I guess you're a millennial, right? I don't know what your generation is. Okay. But grew up, the point is that you are super fluent online. Like Mm. this is the world that you were born into. You grew up online. And I think the ways in which female friendship and young people, young, uh, young women, young girls working out their identity and engaging with one another online, it can become very fraught. Mm. And this book draws that super well. You have Joni, the victim, as we have discussed, Joni Wilson. She's burned to death by her friends. Uh, they are Angelica Sterling Stewart, Violet Hubbard, and Dolly Hart. And I would just like to hear you talk a little bit about this aspect of it, the ways in which teenage girls can be so cruel to one another and also really great to one another. But I mean, this is a story of things going very wrong. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, sort of teenage years are a time when a lot of people... I mean, you're shoved in with school to start with, which I think is maybe not actually the best place to put people when they're um, adolescent, is to sort of jam them all together in one building and just kind of have them compete for resources is is maybe not maybe not the ideal situation I, I mean I've been I've been joking in some of these interviews that when you're 12 they should just put you in a pod and then they let you back out again when you're 19 or something and then and then you can go and live your life and you can just be contained for these kind of like worst and most upsetting um, years of your life and I, I think it's a time when people experiment a lot with hierarchy and they experiment a lot with cruelty and they experiment a lot with who they are and who other people are to them and where they kind of fit into these hierarchies and what they can get away with. And I also just think it's a very plastic time. It's when you're kind of rehearsing your personality and what you're interested in and who you actually are. And it's kind of, you're you're picking your personality in a lot of ways. And which does mean I think a lot of people sort of experiment with being terrible for a, for a little bit or maybe they can't necessarily help being terrible because of the the kind of heightened emotional experience of adolescent adolescence and how intense and unpleasant it can be in a lot of ways and yeah I think it's just it's an interesting time it's particularly it's an easy time for writers to deal with it it's a bit of a cheat working with teenagers because teenagers can kind of realistically do anything in terms of the it it just seems like your your brain and your personality are so flexible and movable and even though you might have some basic personality traits it just feels like you can particularly when you're in a group you can very easily get skewed or pulled into a lot of different directions I mean there are a lot of I think a lot of the most kind of biggest and famous cases of mass hysteria are often taking place in in girls schools and I think there's something really really interesting about that Uh, I think like teenage 
teenagers, particularly teenage girls, are often experiencing this really, really extreme and intense form of empathy as well. It's almost like you're kind of realizing for the first time that you're not like the only person in the whole world and everybody else has this sort of inner life and they are people as well. And there's a lot you can do with that. You can either kind of choose to really identify with and to to understand the people around you and to be kind to them or you can kind of use that to be as cruel as possible and I think I think that's all you can do both at, at once <laughs> um, or you can pick and choose who you decide to empathize with and I just think I don't know that it's, it's just a very very potent and interesting time and, and a bit of a cheat for, for writers to work with because like I said it is so flexible and, and easy to deal with and in terms of the of the sort of digital stuff I think in part because of my age and I'm I'm 29 which I sort of had to think about there for a minute <laughs> I'm, I'm 29 so I think I, I am a millennial but I think I was because I because I'm on the younger end of that I was sort of using the internet from being like a from being like a little kid so it wasn't kind of a case of having a MySpace profile when I was 15 or 16. This was like, I was on Neopets at the age of nine on my parents' AOL kind of <laughs> connection. And yeah, it, it's that that experience of really, really growing up online and being kind of among the first sort of group of, of digital natives, I think the term is, is, was really interesting. I think particularly for people my age and a bit younger, uh, having parents that don't understand the internet at all while you're kind of completely fluent in it leads to a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of um, are you having access to things that you necessarily shouldn't have access to <laughs> um, and yeah it's just a it, I think the the internet around the 2010s is just a very interesting and very unstable place and not as unstable as it was in the late 2000s and the early 2000s but it was definitely still there was still kind of a bit of that wild west element there and I think Tumblr which is a website that plays a lot of that plays a very big role in penances. Interesting is, I think almost in some ways the last of of some of that wild westiness that that was there on the internet. In terms of, there were just very few adults on there. <laughs> it was just mostly kids, and I think the a lot of the. I mean, now Tumblr's user base is older, but I think it's basically just because people my age are like still using it and that's where their kind of community and their their sort of home is online. But yeah, back in the day- Just wait really, wait until really wait age. until you're senior citizens. You'll yeah, all be no, on Tumblr and then the posting. Be. <laughs> <laughs> so th- this is another aspect of the book that unsettled me is the portrayal of online culture mm-hmm. and in particular, these teenagers who are writing fan fiction about serial killers and school shooters. This is real. This is yes. not this is not something you just made up whole cloth. This is something you're pulling from the actual. Yeah, no, this is this is very real. Um I it wasn't something that I had a great deal of contact myself with when I was in fandom spaces, when I was using them very heavily and actively as a teenager. I think when when I was a teenager, that was quite interesting that when I was a teenager, that was a bit of a like there was a bit of a moral reckoning in fandom and it became much more of a self-policing space than it had been. So previously it was very Wild Westy. And then it kind of, it got to this point where I felt like I was around 18 or 19, which I think is probably because there are a lot of people who used to be kids who were becoming adults kind of saying things like, maybe we shouldn't all dogpile on teenagers when they have bad opinions and, and that kind of thing. But something that was interesting was there was a real reckoning about the morality about writing fan fiction about real existing people. And that was never, 
a part of fandom that I engaged with, but it used to be really big. And then it felt like there was sort of a bit of a cultural shift where it went from being quite a normal fandom thing to be into to like a super weird thing to be into and quite stigmatized. And then I think with within that, I think they were the sort of true crime and serial killer fandom stuff was always seen as a very extreme wing of that end of fandom stuff. But yes, I remember that being something that people would actively, it was like actively mocked on the website that that existed. And it was something that I hadn't thought about a great deal until I read Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe, who has, which is a a book, a nonfiction book about, I think it's looking at four different cases of true crime fans who are women. Uh, which is a fantastic book. It was really, really influential for Penance. And the, there is an extended bit where she talks about Columbiners and the the online Columbine fandom. And and yeah, I just thought, it. I mean, obviously it, it fits very well into the world of Penance, but it was something that I hadn't really thought about at all as an adult until I was kind of faced with it again in Rachel Monroe's book and then thought like, oh God, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> And yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's a very small, I would say it's a very small and heavily stigmatized community, but it is, it is there um, and it is very strange. Well, it's unsettling to think, you know, it's like when you think about these mass hysterias or these mass psychoses that can happen among groups of people at any age, but for the purposes of this conversation among a group of teenagers, mm. you could see how maybe if you get a group of teenagers together and maybe there are drinking or doing drugs or something or they're in it i don't know they're just in a bad way you could imagine how through like social pressure and social confirmation and Mm. uh whatever it is you could get to a place where a group of kids could do something truly awful that they would not have done independently Mm. you know that sort of group think i can see that Mm. what i find even more unsettling is to think of ways in which online culture can help to foment this sort of stuff mm. and can become insidious in this way and affecting in this way for people because it is something that is done silently at home. Like I have mm. a teenager now who's sitting at home on her laptop and uh, you know, I'm reading this book thinking like, oh my God, what is she reading? <laughs> you know, like you gotta be careful. You gotta be careful is the point. I mean, you people, you, your kid is taking in or falls into some sort of social group online. I think the the fear for me is that these kinds of places can be even more permissive mm. in a sense because you're at a remove. Everybody's sort of hiding behind their screens at home. And, you know, this is it. This is social media and the internet. It's a place where you can kind of perform versions of yourself and it allows for a little bit more freedom you can even take on alter egos right you can have Mm -hmm. like a burner account or whatever and be hiding behind a a fake identity so it just points to that it points to the toxicity of it and the danger of it is you know in these extreme cases Mm. yeah i think they're um they are in terms of the permissiveness of those spaces it is something that's quite interesting because like I said I feel like fandom culture kind of underwent a bit of a a bit of a a reckoning while I was there about the level of permissiveness in fandom and that it was kind of decided that there were certain behaviors that weren't okay and that were going to be kind of stigmatized going forward which has actually led to a really it has ended up leading to a really weird sort of 
big generational gap between people who engage in fandom stuff and that there's a sense that like adults and I would say probably people my age and older but I think people probably more so slightly older than me are like these kind of like weird creepy adults that are still using um the internet when they should have a job and that they're doing all of this kind of like the, the the fact that they're engaging in fandom at all is kind of gross and weird and then the other side we've kind of got these these awful puritanical teenagers that are ruining the internet for adults that are just trying to <laughs> that kind of thing which is um an interesting generational divide in terms of the those kind of like serial killer fandom spaces i feel like they're almost produced by by this kind of this sort of extraordinary empathy i was talking about just having this complete misfire where you you've kind of grown up in a culture which in a lot of ways kind of asks for you to empathize with people who do i think particularly to use columbine as an example there's like a really really pervasive myth that those boys did that because they were bullied because that is a much simpler narrative than you know one of them had become extremely radicalized and i think both of them were espousing, espousing like very, very far right views. And it, it's probably just a bit simpler and cleaner for people to hear that it was like a revenge motivated thing because they were bullied rather than it was a more complicated and weird thing that was related a lot to early online radicalization and and this sort of skewing and dehumanizing of other people and this this lack of empathy, general lack of empathy that was being created. And I think hearing sort of narratives that like, school shooters and serial killers are sort of disaffected loners and they were bullied and nobody was there to help them i think i think for some for some teenagers who probably also feel disaffected and lonely and bullied that's probably a really really appealing narrative um and will probably make you feel very like very seen and very included and very like just very very like you would empathize a lot with that i think if you heard it and it, it's interesting that these communities sort of crop up around, like I said, almost this complete misfire of empathy. And they're very, I don't know, they're very strange places. And I think they can end up being very toxic and very odd. I mean, I saw, um, uh, it was it was talking about a case of a woman who was involved in true crime fandom who had then gone on to commit a crime or at least plan to commit a crime. And... Um, I think it was just a YouTube video I saw about it, but they were talking about the Discord server that this woman was running, uh, which is like a, like a chat room. And they were, people were in there sort of saying like, don't like don't shame people for, for being empathetic toward these killers. Don't shame people for saying that they're attracted to the killers. And I think that was also very interesting that there was this folding in of this sort of almost social justice language regarding not shaming people and being sort of empathetic and accommodating to people's feelings and that there was no sort of space to to tell people that their feelings were wrong and bad and they should maybe reconsider who they were empathizing with and why and and yeah I just I find those spaces so so interesting because they're so they're sort of so taboo but a lot of what they're doing is quite like they operate very very similarly to like normal fandoms I think that's almost one of the things that's most unsettling about them is that you could see somebody talking about the Columbine shooters with almost exactly the same language that they might talk about, like, I don't know, like Loki from the Marvel films or something like that. Like there would be like a very, very similar kind of language. And I think that's just very, very strange, very interesting. Well, I'm going to date myself again, but I was 
30 minutes away from Columbine on the day that it happened. Wow. I remember being in my being in my car listening to the radio and there was like live reports breaking. And this was really I know it wasn't the first school shooting, but it mm. really was the that was when the epidemic sort of mm. began and it, it was like really sensational and awful. But yeah, it was just so weird. It was just right down the road. This craziness mm. was unfolding and there's a book by is his name dave something it's called columbine did you ever mm. read that book it was about the about yes. the shootings yeah i think i, I started dave cullen it. yes dave cullen yeah um i haven't finished it but i did i did start it i think it got slightly lost in the source of penance research actually but i i liked what i read from it yeah it demythologizes it you know mm. it demythologizes it and does what we've been talking about when it comes to really good true crime writing it helps you get to a deeper level of understanding as to why Mm. And uh, it's just it's just wild to me because I had no I have no frame of reference for fan fiction world and mm. the idea that there could be teenagers at home writing fan fiction about these guys like I kind of get it as an emotional and psychological mm. exercise even if it's done poorly or it's done insensitively mm. I can understand how a teenager or anybody I guess would do this as a way of maybe trying to work through the emotional difficulty of it or to try to understand it, but it can also get gross pretty quickly. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a pretty, there's a point at which it's like, you know, what are you doing here? You're just mm. sort of glamorizing this in a way that's unhealthy and wrong. Like it shouldn't, shouldn't, you know, you should focus your attention elsewhere. Mm. But in, in doing research for this book, like, were you reading this stuff? I, I guess. And as a, as a kid growing up, did you have experience with this stuff? No, I didn't. I didn't sort of scour through online fandoms well those those online fandom spaces I think with general online fandom spaces because that's what I was that was kind of my hobby when I was a teenager I was just in online fandom and I used to write a lot of fan fiction not about serial killers just mostly just about wizards but um I was I was like that was like a space I was in and like I said I kind of I didn't really need to do that much research because there is so much crossover in the way that 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 kind of true crime fandom behaves versus the way normal fandoms behave so I didn't deliberately go in and read a bunch of Columbine fan fiction. And in fact, I would imagine that a lot of it's quite well hidden. I think these communities that know that they're stigmatized know not to put their stuff in a place that's really easily available because they'll just end up with it being screenshotted and shared and, and mocked um, publicly. So I think those those communities probably operate a lot more secretively and they're probably more on sort of password protected discord servers and etc etc than they would be kind of kicking about tumblr in the, in this day and age but yeah it's like i said i was i was aware that it was there when i was a kid but i was not looking at it because it was so heavily stigmatized and it, i don't know it's just very strange i i've sort of compared it to like knowing that this stuff was on tumblr was a little bit like knowing like the ark of the covenant was there and you could just kind of lift it off and be like Ugh. <laughs> and then um, <laughs> your um, face would melt you yes know. exactly um a lot of face meltingly odd stuff um out there and i was only aware of it as like something that people were mocking essentially it was kind of something that would occasionally pop up on tumblr is like i've screen capped a bunch of stuff from this insane person's blog that kind of thing but yes no it's it's very odd i i think and i think one of the oddest things about it is how similar it is in, in terms of tone and style to to normal fandoms but yeah i think even even normal fandoms have a lot of space to become just very kind of toxic and weird and culty. I mean, there are a lot of stories you can find about people who 
have effectively kind of started their own small cults via having fandom followings. And I think that's just something really interesting. This is what happens when you give nerds power um, as they start a cult. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's crazy. And we will be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. And now, back to the program. So I want to ask you about, or look a a bit more about your childhood. You grew up in a place called Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Yes. I have to take a moment to acknowledge how much I love the names of towns in England. Yeah. What, like Newcastle is the name of the town. What does upon-Tyne mean? What is that in reference to? So I can completely break down the etymology. So the, I'm... Newcastle was originally a Roman fort settlement, which they called Novocastria, which just referred to the fact that there was a new castle that they had built there. (laughs) And it is on the River Tyne. So it's just a very big river that runs through um, the northeast of England. Okay, so this is northeast England. Yes. And Um, you grew up as an an only child. Yes. Um, So Newcastle's about, it's England's northernmost city. So it's about like about 50, 60 miles away from the Scottish border. Isn't that the, isn't there a beer called Newcastle? Am I wrong? There is. It's Am Newcastle I... Brown Ale. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um. I, I've I've drank a few of those in my day. <laughs> I remember that from college somehow, but that's where it comes from. Yes. Yeah. Comes from Newcastle. There'll be a. I think there's a picture of the Tyne Bridge, which is the the big bridge in the center of the city that runs over the Tyne. Okay. And so, did you have do you have any like literary family members? Like, do you have like like literary DNA? No, not at all. No, my background's very working class. So um, both my parents left school. My dad left school at 14 and went to work in a factory and drove a forklift for a while and a crane. He always likes to tell me that he he drove a crane as well. Um, He worked at Blythe Power Station, which was a big hydroelectric power station in Newcastle that was shut down. So I got to watch that be demolished when I was a kid, which was fun. Um, And kind of the last sort of ends of the sort of gradual deindustrialization of the country um there's a very big there's a very very big government office in newcastle as well so my mom has worked for the work for the civil service the entire time i was a kid my dad joined her at the civil service once Blythe power station was closed though he did work he worked at a big supermarket called asda for a bit <laughs> between the power station and the civil service so um no, not really. And then it's kind of sort of similar for my grandparents, and but neither both my grandmothers were homemakers. Both my grandfathers worked in industry, and and that and that's it. Kind of just keeps going back like that. Um, 
So, and now, but now here you now here you are. Now here I am. Yeah, <laughs> a, a, a 29 year old. Like this is what your second book, third yes. book. Yeah. Second. 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 Book. second. So. Yeah. This has got to be, I mean, is this, is this a surprise for your parents that you turned out to be this writer of literary fiction? <laughs> I, I think it's it's sort of a surprise and it's and it's not. I, th- I think they sort of always expected me to do something like this, which is, is nice. But um, uh, I mean, there have, there have probably been more, more barriers in place for me than there have been for other authors that may have gotten to this point in my age. But then there have also probably been a lot less barriers for me than there have been for a lot of other people. I I, I got very lucky on my publishing journey in that when I was, this will have been when I was like 24. Um, so I, I went to university in London and then moved back up to Newcastle, essentially just because I couldn't afford to stay down here. Well, wait, wait, um, I want to stop you. I want to I want to stop you. I have to interrupt you because I want to trace this journey like step by step. Step by you, step. After... Well, I mean, most steps anyway. After <laughs> high school, you decide to do like what some sort of art course where you yes. studied sculpture. Yes, I, I did an art degree. So I did I did a fine art degree on which I, d- I did do sculpture on it. So I did a bit of sculpture, a bit of photography, and then I kind of ended up on filmmaking and performance art at the end there. It was like a broad fine art course where I could do it's sort of anything and that was I did that in London so that was originally I wanted to study English at university but my English marks had not I, I my my grades had gone to pot a little bit in um, English just um because of my own sort of I don't know I guess my own personal difficulties with concentrating and the fact that I was spending a, probably far too much time writing fan fiction instead of doing my homework and in Newcastle and in the UK more broadly, but particularly in the Northeast, there is a very permissive underage drinking culture. So I was also <laughs> spending a lot of time in nightclubs when I was um, 16 or 17 that I probably shouldn't have been. So my grades weren't great in English, but they were still very good in art. So I did art at university instead, where through my course, I kind of struggled to settle down. It was a huge culture shock for me. And I ended up just doing, I was like a lot more interested in essay writing and narrative stuff while I was there. And then I moved back up to Newcastle and I was working, I was, I was just sort of doing um, bar work and then retail. I worked at an Apple store for about 18 months. And then it was sort of, while I was working at the Apple store, I was applying for a lot of, for the, seven cultural industry jobs that are available in Newcastle at any given time. And I had applied for a job at an organization called New Writing North, which is a literary charity that works in in the Northeast, well, in the North of England more generally, which is is essentially to help new writers and established writers and is kind of generalized literary charity, I suppose. And I applied for a job there that I was very underqualified for and did not get, but they liked me enough that they invited me onto a funding, a sort of funding pot, which was called the, the Young Writers Talent Fund, where I got trained as like a creative writing facilitator with them. And then they also set me up with some one-to-one mentorship with a writer called Matt Veselovsky, who works and is from the region and is a, is, is, is a fantastic crime writer. He has a really good series called Six Stories, which is written in the form of true crime podcasts, which is an interesting genetic link there. <laughs> and yeah, my the one-to-one mentorship I got, this will, this will have been in sort of late 2017 into 2018, was really, really important. It made like a huge difference. And it was under that mentorship that I wrote my first novel. Um, I wrote a bunch of short stories and I wrote my first novel, Boy Parts, which 
around the time that I was getting the mentorship, I had also gotten a job working for a women's literary magazine called Mislexia, where I sort of learned, I kind of learned the sort of industry stuff of writing, like what is a literary agent and how do you get one and how do you write a cover letter and how do you do all of this stuff and what's an indie press and (laughs) where do you find those? So I ended up sort of forming this slightly cobbled together kind of equivalent of of a master's degree probably, where I got this great one-to-one mentorship as well as this really great insight into the literary industry. And then I finished a draft of Boy Parts, spent four or five months just sort of going over and editing it, and then had sent it off to an indie press in July of 2019 after getting... I'd sent it off to quite a few agents, but I hadn't really had a response. And then, yes, and then I think they like just snuck me onto the list for 2020. I think I actually would have been 2021 if I'd submitted it like a couple of weeks later. So it's another sort of weird sliding doors thing. And then, um, yeah, Boy Parts came out in 2020. And now I'm here. <laughs> okay. But let's talk about Boy Parts because Boy Parts was a kind of TikTok sensation or a mm-hmm. book talk sensation, which is very contemporary and very impactful. I mean, this mm. there has been a ton written about the impact of TikTok on the literary mm. world and how it is elevated. Oh God, I'm going to blank on her name. Who is the Colleen Hoover? Yes, yeah. Who dom- dominates bestseller lists mm. largely on the strength of her popularity on t- on BookTok. Mm. And Boy Parts went viral essentially on TikTok. Mm. And for people listening who have no idea what TikTok <laughs> is, it's basically little selfie videos. I mean, it's videos <laughs> of all kinds. It's little short video clips, but BookTok in particular tends to feature people filming themselves talking about books or making little short form videos about books. Mm. And if things go viral, it can lead to significant book sales. And I don't yes. know where the sale where the sales numbers are now, but I read somewhere that Boy Parts had sold 60,000 copies. Yeah. Uh, it's probably more than that at this point, but that's an incredible number for a debut yeah. on an in, on an indie press. Yeah. And is it correct that TikTok is the 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 key driver of those sales figures? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think it, it was like it was doing well. It was doing really well for what it was prior to TikTok. So in 2020, it had been like I I was with an an independent press called Influx Press, who are based here in London. I've I moved to Faber and Faber in early 2021. Yeah, early 2021. And I know that it was, I think it was like their fastest selling title. I think it ended up being their best selling title in that year as well, which has probably been outstripped now because they've got Percival Everett as well. But it, 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 it had done very, very well, like I said, for what it was. And then it was like, at some point in 2021, I remember one of my friends sent me a TikTok that had a quarter of a million views. It was about boy parts. And I said to her, do not send me anything like this ever again. <laughs> I don't want to see it. It was like it was like such a shock that I was just like, oh my god, I don't want to see this. <laughs> but I thought I had assumed that, th- th- that this was just like a complete one-off, and it was just that it happened to be that there was just this one video that had gone like quite big on 
on BookTok, but it was actually several <laughs> videos, I understand, and then it became something of like a little trend on there. I'm not quite sure. But yeah, it was essentially, I, I it was it was like, I, I knew in the background that it was sort of happening. And I think I was aware that my own like social media had had like a bit of a bump in following. And then it was like, I got this royalty statement in at the end of the year that I was kind of like, what the fuck has happened with, with this? I'm rich. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it was it was it was mad. It was kind of like I think generally when you're you sort of get those kind of sales figures and stuff, they they're they're sort of high and then they get a little bit higher and then they go down and then they go down. So it's like I'd seen a couple where it had gone it sort of gone like up and then it was sort of on the decline and it was what you'd expect and then it was like it was suddenly just like, oh it sold like another like ten thousand copies and you're just kind of like <laughs> Um So that's been that's been a very interesting thing um in my career in terms of i don't know just the the complete luck of the draw of it just feels ridiculous i think i've been very i I gotta interrupt you like Mm. when something like this happens you said you didn't want to watch these tiktok videos (laughs) so you never did like or attempted to do any kind of forensic analysis of how this started i would be i mean if this happened to me i would be like who who's like patient zero here who how did who kicked this process off like i mean there must have been now but but there must be some really influential tiktokers who became fans of your book that has to be what what happened right like there are certain people who are very popular on book talk who can really drive virality yeah i know a couple of people now who are it's it's quite funny because I only use Instagram I use Twitter a little bit but I'm pretty much exclusively using Instagram and and following often doesn't cross over from TikTok to Instagram so it's kind of like I'll be like oh yeah that book blogger that I know that has like a couple of thousand followers and then you find out that they're in like 300k or whatever on on BookTok so maybe I could do with speaking to some of the book talkers that I have gotten to know and a kind of like what what happened here what started this because it's a complete mystery to me to be honest and yeah I don't I don't I, I think it was just I was so intimidated of it at the time because of the the content of boy parts is I don't think it's particularly transgressive but a lot some people do think it's very transgressive and I when I saw that there were a couple of videos that were sort of picking up a lot of steam my immediate thought was like I'm gonna get cancelled I'm gonna get cancelled on book talk that's gonna be me <laughs> that's that's this is the end of my career because <laughs> um, I'm gonna get ta- cancelled on book talk now but I didn't get cancelled on book talk uh, which is which is good um, <laughs> I'm very glad that I didn't get cancelled I mean there's still time for there's me to always, get there's on always there's always time but <laughs> <laughs> but what about when it comes to penance, trying to recreate or capitalize on the goodwill that exists on book talk for boy parts? Like, have you tried to, has, you know, have your, has your publisher tried to get the book into the hands of book talkers once again to try to recreate? Yes, I think so. I think because they, they, they essentially, they, they're just, they're, they're sort of, they've superseded book bloggers a little bit, I think, as the sort of standard go-to, here's who we send our books to. Um, but yeah, I think I think what's probably best for helping to recreate or not not kind of drag on their goodwill too much is probably just for me to stay off there and not um, kind of, uh, I guess, try and force my way in. Because I think it's very organic and it's very nice that it's happening. And it's also very nice that I'm not aware of it and that I don't have to deal with it at all and that I don't have to steward it. 
kind of in the way that like a, a Tessa Moshfeg is huge on there and I don't think she uses social media at no. all and that that's kind of sort of almost what you want isn't it is that they're talking about your work but they're not talking about you <laughs> it's like a it's like a massive like PR machine and marketing machine yeah if, but you can't no, the crazy. thing about it is that it's like you can't game it I guess maybe you could but like you know like the like who who just dis- they decide who they want to talk about and mm. right i mean unless there's something i'm missing yeah. like there's nothing you can really do and i think if you go in there i guess maybe if you're organically going in there and trying to meet people in the book community and you're friendly you you might mm. be able to build some relationships but that's a lot of time uh it's better yeah. to be like you or a tessa where it's just happening you're like okay <laughs> to the victor yeah. goes the spoils <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's strange. It almost feels a little bit like, um, I mean, I feel, I've heard people who work in publishing talk about how, you know, how difficult it is to market books and how essentially you are just entirely reliant on word of mouth after a certain point. And it feels like it's that word of mouth thing almost taken to new digital levels where if if you're the book that's a word of mouth on TikTok at the minute, then... <laughs> Yippee. Well, and we should say too, we should say too that BookTok, if unless I'm mistaken, but I believe BookTok is driven by a strong like by a strong majority by women. It's it's women mm. who are on BookTok and talking about books. There are some guys, but it's not it's not even close in terms of the ratio. So, I feel like Mm-mm. like female-centric books and books with, you know, female protagonists and dealing with female concerns are more likely to get a strong response on book talk is that your understanding of it mm. yeah i think so i think um though i do think there has to be i think there has to be an additional thing there that that does kind of grip people i mean in terms of because i think a lot of publishers are now under the impression that if we just sort of if we put out a book with a woman in it <laughs> tiktok's gonna love it um <laughs> which is which isn't necessarily the case i i do think as much as i i agree that it is definitely it's very female-led and i think you're a at sort of a big benefit to grabbing a tiktok audience if you're working there i think if, you, if you're a woman and your book is sort of concerned with gender and I I think I think there does have to be something else about it like I think um I think it's interesting that I mean to to mention Moshfag again and and myself that when we are kind of living in times where people have said that young people are increasingly puritanical and increasingly sort of only interested in sort of woke media (laughs) and stuff that they that two of the writers that have kind of really taken off on there are people that are dealing with like transgressive work and horrible people who are awful and don't do things that are politically correct and and so on and so forth. I think people are hungry for um, it. I wonder if people are starving for that. Yeah I think I yeah I think people are really I think there's like a real pushback and people are really really wanting to see more stuff that is like a bit more transgressive and a bit more I don't know just a bit nastier really. (laughs) Well yeah it's like a space where you can kind of explore those things safely or something. You know, because it's fiction and it's on the page. And I feel like, well, I mean, I guess, I don't know, Otessa would sort of contradict this because she's more like my generation. But I feel like your youth, your internet, you know, your online fluency, the Mm. contemporary aspects of Boy Parts and its narrator, that stuff plays well to TikTok and BookTok, which is driven not only by uh, female 
you know, TikTokers, but also I think by younger people. There aren't a ton of people my age、mm. on TikTok, as far as I know. I guess it's growing, but it seems like a younger platform. Yeah, I mean, I consider myself too old for TikTok wow,、okay. <laughs> in so, some、yeah. ways. What am I doing on TikTok? <laughs> Spiritually, I'm too old for TikTok. Spiritually, I,、uh, yeah, I, am, yeah, I, I put <laughs> clips of this show up on TikTok. I don't know if it's the right kind of content. What I have said repeatedly is that I don't, I physically cannot make a, a selfie video where I'm just like just、mm. talking to the camera. I can't do that. Some people can. It seems like lots of people can do that. That's sort of the the go to format where you're just chatting at somebody. Mm. Can't do it. It drives me crazy.、Mm. I don't know what it is, but it's just not for me. <laughs> yeah, I find that that's not. That's. I feel like for me, there's not a lot of. There's not enough brevity there for me. I would like. I would prefer if they were just shorter. Like I feel like whenever I see a funny TikTok, I feel like there are very few funny TikToks that couldn't be improved by being like twenty percent shorter. So I feel like they've gotten a little bit. It's like a little bit long-winded on there for me. A little bit too,、uh, <laughs> a little bit long-winded. I think also just a bit, just just very like very young. I think I think BookTok does skew more toward people that are like my age, but like not like raw TikTok, like neat TikTok, just feels like it is for. It feels like it is for children, doesn't it? And it is quite like my my partner downloaded it, and he's um. He's what, like four years older than me, and the like the neat for you page when you haven't put any of your algorithmic data into it, it is like literally it just it just throws you teenage girls in bikinis. That's all it is, and he basically just downloaded it and was like, "I need to delete this、yeah. app. I feel like I feel like they're going to arrest me for using yes, this now." Yes, that's how I I because、um, I get on there and like, <laughs> listen, it is very easy to just sit there and scroll through video clips. And they know, like it's like for me. I'll tell you, like this is what from day one. This is not any. The thing about it is that it's not the result of your activity on TikTok. They're just feeding you content that they know from analyzing the data has high engagement rates. And it's like I'm flipping through, and it's like an animal attack. So it's like I'm flipping through, and suddenly there's like a bear attacking a woman, and you're just like, oh my god, and you you know. Spikes your cortisol, and then you flip to the next one, and it's like some cute girl dancing. And then you flip to the next one, and it's、yeah. like a plane crash. It's the worst content, but it sucks you in. And all of a sudden, like twenty、yeah. minutes have gone by, and you've looked at like a hundred videos, and your brain just feels like it's mush. You know, it's it's just not.、Mm-hmm. It cannot be good for people. So that's my like cranky、yeah. old man. Analysis of TikTok. I guess BookTok is the more benign TikTok experience. Yes, you know. I guess it's got some yeah, something positive、so. about it. Yeah, I think so. If you can get into like a little community like that, it's probably it's probably perfectly pleasant. I mean, my um, there was a point where Instagram was trying to become more like TikTok, so my like Instagram recommendations went absolutely insane for a little bit, where it was just it was kind of very like. For some reason, it was showing me. It was showing me a lot of very, very ill babies.、Oh. I was getting a lot of extremely unwell babies on Instagram for a while, and then it realised that all I want to look at is like cats and people doing drawings <laughs> and like makeup and hair, and that and that's very pleasant. And cooking, I get a lot of cooking stuff now, which is which is nice. That's kind of all I want to see is like a kitten and then someone making pasta and then someone making a different kind of pasta and then another kitten. <laughs> But、um, and but I already find that very distracting. I think if I had, if it was TikTok and I had like even more cat videos to watch, I don't think I, I just don't think I get anything done. Yeah, yeah no.
and then I don't know, maybe I would get radicalized into some sort of terrible... Um, you never know. It's dangerous. <laughs> cat supremacy opinion. These, these algorithms are dangerous, <laughs> I'm telling you. I don't think I don't think these platforms have our best interest in mind. But it uh, it's definitely been a positive for you. And, you know, it got you... Yes. No, I can't complain. It's, it's been, been wonderful. <laughs> Boy Parts has no found complaint. a big readership. <laughs> Penance is now out on a major press, not only in the UK, but here in the States. And you also are doing, I believe, some screenwriting, correct? Yes, yeah. So I'm adapting boy parts for television. I can't say who with or where that might be going, but top um, secret. Yeah, we're at, we're at like a we're at, yeah. <laughs> it hasn't been greenlit or anything, but we're kind of at the point where we're going to be finding out soon if it's been greenlit or not. So I've um I've written like the first two episodes of that, which is which is fun. And I might get to write the rest of them. <laughs> so we'll see. And then, yeah, I've got a couple of other sort of secret in development projects. I'm adapting someone else's novel, but I can't say who or what it is um, for, for film, which is fun. And yeah, and, and Boy Parts is, is a play as well that is going on in London next week, <laughs> which is which is very weird to say. That starts running on October 19th at Soho Theatre which I haven't adapted that, but I've consulted on it and it's been it's been really, really cool and really fun to watch that sort of come together. Are you gonna go on opening night? Yes. I'm going to I'm going to the dress rehearsal. I'm going on opening night. I'm going for the last preview. I'm going for press night. I'm going for guest night. <laughs> and um so I think it's gonna be I think I'm gonna see this about seven times in the space of about two weeks. That's gonna be so which, su- um, so surreal though to yeah, watch your novel so on stage. That's great. Yeah. Super exciting. All right. Well, you've got a lot going on, and you're only 29 years yes. old. Unbelievable. Yes. I am very happy to meet you. Congratulations on Penance. I'm glad we got to spotlight it in the oh, book club. You. I wish you well you. with Thanks it. Thanks so much for having me. And I wish you well with... Wait, did I ask you if you have another book in the works? You have a story collection coming, don't you? Yes, short story collection, yes. I'm not exactly sure when that will be in the U.S. schedule, but it's out in the U.K., at autumn of next year i think it'll probably be around like this time next year probably what's it called it's called she's always hungry <laughs> okay well we'll keep an eye out for it congratulations again eliza and thank you thank so you. much for talking with me oh, thank you for having me on thank you okay everybody there we have it that was my conversation with eliza clark author of the novel penance available now from harper books Penance is the official October pick of the Other People Book Club. If you would like to join the book club, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. If you would like to learn more about Eliza Clark and her work, you can visit her official website. It is elizaclarkauthor.com. You can also follow her on Twitter and on Instagram. One more time, the book is called Penance. Go get your copy immediately. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Subscribe to my weekly email newsletter over at Substack. And if you love this program, join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to do me a quick favor, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. Write a little review if that's an option. It helps the show in the rankings. It helps the show find new listeners. If you would like to get another people t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. 
And finally, a quick plug for my latest book. It is a novel entitled Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if that sounds interesting, I encourage you to read my novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Wednesday, a special and I think very timely episode about how to fight for truth and protect democracy in an age of rampant disinformation. I will be in conversation with author Lee McIntyre. He has a new book out entitled On Disinformation, available from MIT Press, I think for all of us, right? Anybody who has lived through the past couple of weeks and has paid even a modicum of attention to the news can see that this is a problem, disinformation. And it's a book that I think we could all stand to read and hopefully a conversation that we can all stand to listen to. So Lee McIntyre coming up on Wednesday. Stay tuned.